episode of the Living with Feeling podcast from the Centre for the History of the Emotions. My name is Jules Evans and this episode I interviewed Jeff Mulgan. Jeff is the CEO of Nesta, the National Endowment for Science, Technology and the Arts. And in a long and interesting career, he's also been um, the Director of Policy at 10 Downing Street under Prime Minister Tony Blair. He was also the director of the Prime Minister's Strategy Unit. Um, he was the co-founder and director of the think tank Demos in the, uh, in the late 90s. Um, and he was also the CEO of the Young Foundation, another think tank. And um, he's in, in his career, he's um, researched many different topics from artificial intelligence to urban planning, to uh, different models of good governance. But the area that I'm particularly interested in from the perspective of the Living with Feeling project is um, something that I call the politics of well-being, which is basically the idea that governments and um, organizations and institutions can help to encourage people's well-being, their emotional growth, their resilience, their flourishing, even their spiritual and emotional development. Now, that idea has grown in British politics, particularly in the last um, 20 to 30 years. And Jeff's played a key role in that. So uh, Demos, for example, is one of the first think tanks to do work on this area. Uh, the Young Foundation, when he was there, also did important work on um, the politics of resilience, the politics of belonging. Um, when uh, David Cameron was prime minister, uh, Jeff Mulgan was involved in, in some of the well-being initiatives under his government. He was also... Uh, he's a board member of the of Big Society Capital, uh, and he was a founder of a, a a community movement called Action for Happiness. He uh, founded that with uh, Lord Richard Layard, another important figure in this movement, and with Sir Anthony Selden. And so we talked about the history of the politics of well-being, where he feels that movement has succeeded, and where it st- uh, still has room to grow. We talked about um, what governments can do to mitigate loneliness. Of course, um, uh, the British government recently appointed a minister for loneliness. So um, what can really governments do in that area? Um, we talked also about universities uh, and uh, you know their role in this area, their role uh, in their local communities, uh, the importance of, of further education and evening education, and why uh, many academics on the left are so suspicious and hostile of the politics of well-being. So it was a pleasure to meet him. I've been interested in, in his in his work for uh for two decades. So it was it was a it was a great opportunity to talk about some of these ideas uh, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. When I was at, uh, an undergraduate at university, I came across a collection of essays by Demos um called The Good Life. Uh, and it suggested that politics had steered clear of of moral truths because of a kind of moral relativism but in an essay in that collection you argue that there are in fact certain kinds of uh, truths or, or, or pieces of wisdom that, that humans have come back to through the ages which seem to be kind of kind of collective points of wisdom and that governments shouldn't be afraid of sometimes helping people towards the, that kind of eternal wisdom um, and this, this helped to spark this movement over the last 20 years, um, of, which I've you know, followed, of the politics of well-being, this idea that governments can help people 
um, become happier, more flourishing. Now, why um, why did that movement appear? Uh, you know, then back then in, in in 1998, what was it about that moment where where there was this new type of politics that appeared? Do you think? Well, I think we're still seeing the emergence of a new kind of politics. I, I got interested in it in the early 90s when um, I was running Demos and actually made a radio program on sort of politics and policy of happiness for the BBC then and. Uh, at that point, there were some psychologists working on the topic. We were just beginning to get economists, in a way, going back to their own roots as a discipline, which uh, uh, had originally been interested in, in uh, the pursuit of happiness, um, and looked at what might happen once governments and policymakers made this, rather than GDP maximization, their primary goal. Uh, when I was in government, I, in about the year 2000, commissioned a, a survey then of um, policies around happiness, but if I'm honest, there was almost no interest from my ministers. My then boss was a prime minister who, to be honest, had zero interest. And it was only then in the next decade, in the 2000s, the whole argument shifted to statistics, and the OECD and others gathered lots of statistical offices from around the world to ask, how can you measure happiness uh, alongside uh, GDP and other things? And by the end of the decade, David Cameron, then in opposition, you know, committed that the UK would uh, measure life satisfaction, and we've seen, you know, a, a, a continued spread of um, new metrics for well-being. Lots of practice on the ground, and I, I helped set up Action for Happiness, which has tried to be much more sort of practical, providing individuals or communities or schools or businesses with ideas about how to promote happiness. The odd thing, though, is looking back, very little progress has been made on the middle level of how actually do you shape policies in in healthcare or employment or tax or transport with happiness as the lens. Mm -hmm. There's been some very high-level talk, good measurements and good individual programs, for example, around mental health, but very little progress on that middle level of um, practical policy. Partly, that's probably caused by the financial crash, which happened just as various politicians at the mm -hmm. time, like Sarkozy and Merkel, were becoming interested uh, in a way, that pushed us back to much more traditional concerns about um, pay and survival and stopping the economy crashing. But I'm still fairly confident in the long run, we will see these moving into alignment, you know, the analysis of what, what drives happiness, the, um, uh, what that means at the level of a primary school or a, or a, or a business or a neighbourhood, and then that beginning to become a lens for really shaping all of uh, policy making. Um. In terms of your background, you've got a rather interesting background uh, as as a um, s uh, someone working at a high level of policy because you've also trained uh, as a monk. Is that right in in, in Sri Lanka? Uh, to some extent, though, I don't really talk about that. <laughs> but yeah, but I, I've, I've had quite a you know a long-standing engagement with some some of the strands of Theravada Buddhism, which certainly gives you ways of thinking about yeah. The nature of being human, mm -hmm. uh, and also what well, you mentioned earlier on that the, the place of uh, of wisdom, and indeed the thing which I've been working on a lot in, in most recent years, is how how thought of all kinds happens at larger scales, the scale of a of a city or a company or a nation or a university, for that matter, um, and trying to link some of the extraordinary progress which has been made in recent years on, on data and analytics and AI and so on, mm -hmm. linking that through to how do you actually get better judgment and also, ideally, better wisdom as well. And that's been almost completely missing from the AI computer science 
discussion of what intelligence is in the world. Mm. Um, and in, in my most recent book, Big Mind, I attempt really, I guess, a, a, an integration of a lot of ideas from data analytics, uh, predictive tools, etc., but connecting them to what we know about how thought happens at large scale and how uh, data information and knowledge relate as well to wisdom. Gotcha. And interestingly, the one of the messages of the the quite dynamic now subdiscipline of wisdom studies is that wisdom tends to be highly contextual, very much linked to particular places, particular people, particular contexts. That's what we we value as wisdom. Mm. Whereas algorithms, data, and so on try to find standardized and what's universal. Uh, rules to apply to situations. So, mm-hmm. for me, one of the fascinating things about the you know, this point in the 21st century is we have this extraordinary explosion of tools for um, standardized thinking, mainly computer thinking, so Turing mm-hmm. model computers, and yet we need at the same time the very different modes of thinking which are associated with subtle contextual wisdom. And kind of local wisdom and particular wisdom. Well, I think that's in, in almost every environment and every civilization ever, that has been what has been valued as wisdom is the ability to read a particular situation, a particular mm. moment, particular people, and know what is appropriate action in that context, mm. which, as I say, is rather almost opposite to the way an algorithm works usually. So, um, in, in terms of your practice in Buddhism, um, do you still practice? And do you feel that? This kind of, I mean, lots of my friends and colleagues are interested in the in the overlap between kind of politics and and spirituality, but in in some ways it's quite an awkward overlap in in British culture. Do you think that? I mean, you said you don't talk about you know your your training as a monk before. Is that because you find in public politics people it's a bit left field or people it makes people uncomfortable or why the why do you not talk about it? I don't know, maybe it is because I am British English uh, and see a divide between what is essentially personal and private and what is public. That's probably one reason. Mm. Um, I think another reason is that in our public culture, these are still fairly alien concepts. Uh, and once you start talking about you know, some of the, almost the deeper philosophical concepts of Buddhism, mm. uh, about um, self and presence and so on, you will lose 90% of your audience almost immediately. So, <laughs> so, so I, Which I, audience? Do you mean like in terms of pu- in public policy? Or, or the public. Yeah, yeah my, mm. my neighbours wouldn't know what I was talking about if, uh, <laughs> if I started talking in those terms. So, so hence, I mean, through things like Action for Happiness, you could say we translate, and the Dalai Lama is our patron in that organisation, mm. it's taken a lot of pretty old insights from Buddhism but turned them into a very practical, secular language mm. which is suitable for perhaps a, a primary school or a business or a, or, or, or a neighbourhood of people of very mixed backgrounds. So that's why I would tend to underplay it. Okay, got you. Um, so you've said that one of the issues with the politics of well-being is the middle bit. Finding particular policy interventions which you can show lead to an increase in uh, happiness or well-being. And there's been, a, it's been a challenge to find, isn't it? Kind of things where you could say, this group measured this on the, on the happiness scale, we then did this, and now it's that. Could that be a problem with the measurement, that it's just not very... It's quite hard to get it to move, you know. Like um, it's when you look at 
community or national well-being measurements, they, they tend to stay pretty flat no matter what's happening. There could be a credit crunch or there could be a huge introduction of talking therapies. It still doesn't really seem to move. Is, is, that, is that an issue for... No, I, I think the, the, the problem is that the work hasn't been done. It's much simpler than that. There hasn't mm. been the attention from you know, policy researchers to do experiments, to link interventions to measurements. Mm. My hunch would be, if, if, if the same effort was put into this that is put into um, other things like the economic effects, you would get results. So you'd be able to see, for example, a whole range of interventions to help people into work. We know that unemployment has a huge effect of, on, on unhappiness, mm -hmm. and it would be possible in fairly fine-grained detail to look at different kinds of um, you know, training programs, apprenticeships, job subsidies, etc., and see what their effects were on life satisfaction over three to five years. We would be able to see what effects different you know, mental health interventions would have. You'd hope they'd be quite big, ranging from sort of CBT to prescriptions to um, perhaps peer-based solutions and compare them over time. We might see some quite uncomfortable results from different education policies. One of the oddities of education is often being more educated makes you less happy or at least correlates with being yep. less happy. We don't quite know what the causations are. Uh, at least that would be interesting. We know almost nothing about how things like tax policies interact with well-being but again that's empirically discoverable. And a key issue for the UK at the moment, which there's quite a bit of work, I hope, in the next year, is around things like financial literacy and debt. There's lots of evidence that um, debt and financial insecurity has a huge impact on, on well-being and on mental illness of all kinds. Um, ever since the sort of credit explosion, we've had a lot of people getting into very dangerous positions on credit. Luckily, a low interest rate environment for a few years has sort of hidden that, but as interest rates go up again, there's a high likelihood many more people will be sort of thrust back into um, insecurities mm -hmm. over debt. Now again, that's where policies, which might be helping people with financial literacy or helping to ensure banks weren't selling unsuitable products, could have a big effect. But the work hasn't been done. Mm -hmm. This remains a surprisingly empty space. And, you know, the armies of people around the world who work on policy analysis and design simply haven't yet really got engaged with this issue. Mm. Um, you, were, you're also on, you were on the board of the Big Society uh, Group. I don't know if I get, I've Big Society Capital. Big yeah. Society Capital. Mm -hmm. um, now, there's been um, talks about the politics of loneliness. Theresa May made, uh, mentioned in a speech recently this epidemic of loneliness in the, in, in, in the country, apparently. Um, but it's a challenge to know what government can do in that. Um, do you think that, that policies can, can help mitigate loneliness and encourage people to join up in, in, to, in groups? So this is a really, again, a really interesting question and I think still in the really relatively early days. About 10 years ago when I was at the Young Foundation, we did quite a big study um, for a group of foundations on Britain's changing needs. What were the social needs? And we did case studies in various areas. I did lots of in-depth interviews with isolated older people, refugees, teenagers, etc. And it came, became very clear from that study that isolation had become a major sort of social phenomenon. Mm. It wasn't recognised in sort of social policy discourse. There wasn't a sort of language for it. It wasn't measured. It wasn't attended to. And we argued, and this was 
guess 2008, uh, 7, 8, that this should become a major priority for both social analysis and action because it was almost an epidemic with you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people spending Christmas Day alone, not having anyone to talk to week to week, and not just 83-year-olds, but also, I say, a surprising number of teenagers feeling very, very isolated. Uh, the big lottery fund was persuaded to create some programs um, focused on loneliness. And I think we're just beginning to get that shift into national political discussion. As you say, the mm. UK has a minister for loneliness, whereas uh, in the UAE, which has a minister for happiness, they thought it was a bit comic that they had a minister for happiness, we had one for loneliness. But <laughs> hey, that maybe reflects some, some truths. Um, and then the question is, yeah, what can a government actually do? Mm. We've been involved in an interesting pilot project trying to answer that in, in the West Country. And this is a, a social impact bond um, which tries to provide a reward to essentially a consortium of voluntary organisations which can demonstrate they have reduced isolation. It has a fairly precise measure of isolation, the University of California scale, if you're interested. Mm. Uh, and that, that the hypothesis there that if the various quite sort of low-level um, befriending, visiting, encouraging people to come out and take part in activities will reduce costs on the local council in terms of residential care, on the health service in terms of admissions to uh, A&E, etc., mm. and therefore makes economic sense mm. for the locality. It's still a work in progress, and we're not quite there, but it's attempting to create a much more precise, rigorous answer to loneliness with, say, measures which really stand up to examination. And it's a bond issue as well, is it? It's, it's a social impact bond. Social so, impact bond. So, so it wouldn't be a big bond. I mean, you're talking like tens or hundreds of thousands. Yeah. yeah. Well, a, a bit more than that, um, depending on what scale it reaches. But the aim is to create a, a, a sort of architecture, which almost any area could then adopt, mm. whereby um, there are essentially financial incentives for a bunch of organisations to reduce measurable isolation. It's not the panacea, but mm. I think it's a symptom of this discussion moving from mm. very vague and general and sort of hand-wringing into fairly practical right. action which you could imagine being mainstreamed. What do you think is the potential role for further education um, in combating loneliness and improving community cohesion? I'm uh, very interested in, 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 in that field in, in terms of you know, I think everything from action to happiness courses to joining a choir, these are all in some ways forms of kind of further education. Yet it seems to me that um, with the exception now of, of Jeremy Corbyn's labour, the idea of promoting further education seems to be completely off the policy radar for the last 20 years, unlike, say, in the 60s, where for someone like Michael Young, it was, you know, quite a, an area of innovation. So do you think that... There is, there is a connection there between community cohesion and taking further education more seriously. Do you think policymakers should take further education more seriously? Well, I think it, it's really a tragedy that further education in all its forms has become so marginalised, so low status, so mm. was invisible in policy terms. Um, I think even since 2010, public funding for further education has... Well, certainly for adult education was reduced about 40 to 50 percent and that was from a, a very low base anyway compared to other countries um, and I think there, there are two or three reasons to hope for um, that to change 
One is the very much more sort of instrumental one, that if many millions of people face a risk of their jobs disappearing from new waves of automation, AI, moving not just into you know, warehouses and retail, but also feels like the law, uh, then a lot of people will need new skills. And I think we will need a much more um, really ambitious infrastructure of, um, of rights to education in later life, of navigation tools, self-assessment mm. tools. And uh, other countries are moving pretty um, ambitiously in this field. Singapore, France and others mm. are doing things which I think I would hope we might copy or adapt to the UK situation just from that economic point of view. Then, I think as you say, there's a, there's a different view of further education where it isn't just something which happens within the walls of a college. And to some extent, I think further education became over-professionalised, yeah. over-bureaucratised, mm. and is instead something which is just embedded in communities. So the, for, yeah. the Action for Happiness... And about kind of making meaning, in a way. Absolutely. And the, the Action for Happiness course is you know, meant to be run from someone's home. Mm. Uh, uh, the arts, um, another great place where we know huge benefits to health and meaning, etc., from taking part not just in choirs but almost any kind of arts activity mm. or, or, or sports activity. So I, I sort of feel we need further education to redefine itself as as much peer to peer as kind of professionally delivered in yeah. the, the bureaucratic um, uh, mode. Um, and the more we learn about well being, uh, the more that will, I think, drive us. Uh, in, in that direction too. I think finally there's a, there's a big issue of, of inequality here um, that uh, one of the things you mentioned Michael Young that I think he would have commented on if he was still alive today is the relative weakening of institutions uh, of, for and by the relatively poor in British society. The same is true in many other countries where 150 years ago they were actually very vigorous, very much integrated education, culture, uh, and a strong sort of moral ethos of self-improvement. Like mechanics institutes, uh, workers' it, libraries. Exactly. All yeah. of those were, you know, the, the core of a certain part of working class life. Those all then became sort of absorbed into the state, became bureaucratized, and then got hollowed out, mm. but the underlying civic structures of self-organization had gone. Mm. So um, one of the things you see in pretty much all poor communities across the UK at the moment. It's just a relative weakness of self-organisation. That's mm. true, and that has impacts for, on politics. Mm. It's why you know, uh, there, there's a much weaker expression of the, the economic and political interests that are relatively poor in the UK, or for that matter in the US uh, and France and elsewhere. But, it's, but what is missing is, is that, say, that almost integrated view of really, the self, the community, knowledge, education, a, a, and culture and meaning. Hmm. What can we do about that? Well, <laughs> that's, a, that's a big, uh, a, a very big question. Um, one of the small ways, I guess, we're looking at it uh, from my role at Nesta is partly how some of the, the new digital tools, which are such powerful ways of organising things like you know taxi services or retailing or buying your music, how those could be used to help self-organisation at a community level, mm. a truly sharing shared economy mm. um, uh, we've been talking for example to trade unions about how could you use again digital platform tools to help relatively precarious poor workers self-organize together yeah. in the way that their employers organize much more effectively using 
these tools. And there's been a, a, an absence of capital and skills and an effort to do that. But I think that is one of the really the, 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 the really important tasks of the next 10 or 20 years. We don't end up with a very atomized, unhappy, mm. uh, and very low-paid workforce mm. in much of the country. Yeah, I think it's partly about great online technology. So like sites like Meetup are really useful for community organizing. But then there's also the challenge of physical spaces, like finding... A, it's got to be both. It's got to be yeah. both face-to-face and online. Yeah. And, and all our experience, we, we've done a lot of work on democratic tools. Mm. So some of the democracy tools we've developed here at Nesta are now in use in many cities around Europe, sadly almost none in the UK. Mm. Helping cities involve hundreds of thousands of people in shaping policy and commenting and so on. But the lesson we get to again and again is you need both the digital platform and people coming together in a community or in a city to talk about things. If they're purely digital, they don't have that kind of emotional power, relevance, that sense of bonding and solidarity. Okay. Um, When I write about or even uh, champion the politics of well-being in academia, uh, the, the kind of critique I often face from colleagues is that the politics of well-being is kind of neoliberal, um, that it's about making people happy um, or giving them the sense of happiness so that they don't, um, you know, fight against the conditions of capitalism is, is the kind of classic view. Do you think that's an accurate characterization of the movement, uh, neoliberal? I mean, what I sometimes respond is that in, in some ways it's more neoliberals about rolling back the barriers of the state this is often not about that this is often more about a kind of a neo more it's more paternalist than that uh, in some ways it's things like the expansion of talking therapies or for example that's not about rolling back the barriers of the state it's actually about increasing what government does so what do you think do you think neoliberal is is uh, is the is a right or wrong characterization of this politics of well-being movement To be honest, I think it's fairly ridiculous and deeply reactionary. So there's been a a small but significant, I'll say small C conservative reaction from left academia Mm. against any discussion of happiness and well-being. And the standard argument sort of picks a few things from the extremes of kind of US positive thinking, uh, which was often, uh, I think, itself a fairly reactionary way of saying whatever your circumstance, just you know, if you can only believe you'll be a successful entrepreneur, everything mm-hmm. will be fine. And, and they extrapolate from those, I say, almost parodies of, um, uh, of, sort of silly stance on happiness to attack the whole principle. Um, I think anyone who is a political progressive in any way should, for a start, say, you know, the, the goal of societal well-being is a better goal than almost any other. Mm. Uh, they could often certainly better than just um, uh, just GDP. There is absolutely no evidence that this in some ways deviates people or takes them away from combating structural inequalities. Mm. Uh, and and the kind of critique tends to sort of end up with almost a sort of fatalism that nothing can be done which perhaps mirrors where a fair bit of the academic left has got to, which is yeah. it's so used to critique 
and a stance of sort of sceptical cynicism about almost anything mm. that it ends up in a sort of safe zone of writing you know, articles for, for journals, attacking, mm. but not with anything practical to propose in, mm. in its place. And so it, it's been very sad seeing often pretty clever academics falling mm. into this, I think, very lazy intellectual position, mm. um, which makes them, say, feel clever against some sort of uh, appalling neoliberal conspiracy. Um, I think the critique is also often that it's a very individualised model of well-being. But actually one can be interested also in collective models of well-being, in like models of mutual aid, community support and so on. I mean, it's a very, very broad field, well-being and happiness, not surprisingly, and there are some ultra-individualistic strands. I like to say the ones, all the ones I've been involved in, you could not make that argument about. So Action for Happiness, for example, made its first primary pledge you should commit to the happiness of others around you. Mm. And we very much see happiness as, as social, embedded, and mutual in nature, mm. perhaps different from some of the more American individualistic self-help principles. But as I say, the critics are highly selective. They only take on, that they, they make their argument by selecting the most distorted, mm. most individualistic, most... Um, uh, in some ways, silly versions of this argument, which probably are a bit closer to false consciousness in a Marxist sense. Right. Um, but I think it'd be really sad if the progressive left vacated this space mm. and said it was only liberals or perhaps moderate conservatives who could talk about happiness. That would be a, a, a real, um, actually, betrayal of their own political traditions, which in the 19th century would have thought in these terms quite naturally. Mm. In a way, it's a yeah. sign of the, was the dumbing down and the intellectual thinning of the intellectual left mm. that it's able to make these kind of critiques now. Mm. In terms of possible radical new fields for the politics of well-being, what do you think about the potential of things like, for example, um, psychedelic therapy? Uh, of that becoming, you know, it's now a lot more research into it at places like Imperial and so on, um, that that could become a legal therapy within the next five to ten years. Is that a field you've looked at at all? Not really. No. <laughs> I couldn't comment on that. <laughs> what about um, contemplation? I mean, in some ways, the field you're interested in is, is kind of post-Reformation. It's that we've lost this kind of um, tools and maps for the inner life. And part of that you can trace back, way back, to the loss of monasteries. So if you're interested in the inner life, you have to go to Sri Lanka mm. to learn to meditate. Do you think that there's a place in our culture for new types of centres to teach people a little bit about contemplation? And is that something that either the state or universities could support? I think it's been very interesting to see just in the last three or four years how much discussion has moved um, was in reaction to the always-on connected environment of smartphones and so on to the question of how to create digital sabbaths, spaces of silence, uh, to get away from bombardment from data, information, etc., etc. I, mean, I, I wrote a few years ago about things like digital Sabbaths and no one was interested. Now it's, it's, it seems a bit more mainstream. And um, I think there, there's, there are several places that becomes practical. One is about urban planning. So in, mm. in my, my book, Big Mind, I write about uh, mind-enhancing environments. What would it look like if we designed our cities in order to enhance the right 
properties of mindfulness. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the moment, cities are designed mainly so you can get as quickly as possible from point A to point B, and on the way you may be bombarded with um, you know, billboards and clutter and all sorts of things. So uh, how do we design cities which create um, uh, spaces of peace and of contemplation, but also of quiet interaction? And you mentioned the cloister and the university, and there's an interesting history mm-hmm. of the attempts to design different kinds of physical environment which can promote thoughtfulness, contemplation, uh, quiet, etc. Uh, and and I, I think we will see a reinvention of the Victorian Park and the university spaces and other kind of public spaces yeah. uh, in a way is very different from the last 20 or 30 years, which was all essentially about retail and entertainment as the primary um, sort of you know, vectors for reshaping urban um, mm. public spaces. Quite where that takes you, I don't know. I would love to see universities using their extraordinarily enhanced position as you know, owners of property across cities. Universities in big cities around the world are the main developers of physical space now. Huh. But they've mainly been doing it for residential accommodation for students and for carrying out the classic roles of the university. Not, again, for the cultivation of wisdom or contemplation or reflection. Maybe that's a stretch too far, but if they're not going to do it... No, I, uh, who, I don't who, think who it should be. The... I mean, but it'll take a big culture shift. I... Yeah, and these things maybe come uh, from... Of an urban, they have to come from the community and from urban planning, but when I think of towns which are now together thinking about where they take their public institutions, universities are already beginning to, for example, share their libraries with the rest of the town mm. or open up some of their facilities for the rest of a town or city to mm-hmm. use. And maybe it's not too much of a stretch to go from there to... I think there could be way more links between universities and kind of evening education. Yeah. yeah opening things up. I mean, I, I think it would also give academics this... I know they're very, very busy, but a sense of meaning where they're, they're teaching to retired people who are, you know, hanging on their every word. Yeah. So that gives them yeah. a sense of the general public are into what I'm studying, which I think a lot of academics don't have that sense. Exactly. In the UK, the two main pressures on universities in recent years have been, obviously, REF, as a research excellence and now teaching excellence. But there's always been, as a question mark, about the third pillar, which essentially is their connection to place, both to the local economy and the local society. And I've always thought those three pillars should be you know, roughly equal, yeah. probably slightly different balance for different universities, but where, as a matter of course, a substantial number of them are partly working on the challenges of their, their place, and in the past I've written about challenge-driven university models, that's quite a few uh, examples around the world where you actually get undergraduates and graduates and indeed academic staff much more systematically working on problem-solving with the local community, mm. local authority, businesses, etc. Local prisons, local hospitals. A- a- absolutely. And as part of that, also sharing their knowledge much more widely with the town. Again, it is mm. weird how little that happens. Um, uh, I, I, and I think with relatively a little cost for busy academics to uh, be doing yeah, many more things openly for uh, the, the general population who aren't going mm. to university and uh, as you say, I think that builds more meaning into your life if you're getting the feedback from a place, from your neighbours, from your town, yeah. being useful to it. 
Um, but it is also about incentives. I think my academic colleagues would say they just have zero incentive and zero time from in terms of their career rewards. They have they have absolutely have and zero all, incentives. It's, it's such yeah. a game of musical chairs, yeah. academia. At each stage, so many of the chairs get taken away that you're terrified of what, where are you going to be when the music stops. Yeah, and the incentives of essentially you know, peer-reviewed journals which nobody where reads. One or two people read on average. Um, uh, it, it is rather sad. I'm, I'm speaking actually later this week to a gathering of international universities. Um, and I do think, in many ways, the underlying sort of structural pressures on universities need to be rethought. They have gone yeah. quite badly wrong mm. in, in many, many fields. And that then translates into the career choices of uh, someone in their 20s or 30s who are, who are forced to do things which are definitely not for the the wider, greater good, right. which is, you know, if a university is to have any meaning in our society, yeah. it has to be a pursuit of sort of truth and knowledge, but also of a public benefit. And, and people in their 20s, when they've got the most energy and capacity for unusual thinking, yeah. have to focus on the most tiny little topic for yeah. their PhD. Yeah. So the model we, we worked on, particularly in Tsinghua in, in China, was where you would get you know, a significant number of undergraduates and graduates working 50% of their time on live unsolved problems, either mm. in society or in science, in cross-disciplinary teams, working with practitioners. It's a very different learning model to right. essentially acquiring already proven uh, knowledge. Um, it's, it's difficult, it's challenging, but it's far more motivating, mm. actually. Finally... Um your uh, most recent book is, is looks particularly at AI. Um, it, seeing that in the perspective of your earlier work in the politics of well-being, do you think um, AI can make us happier, and, and how? Well, the, the main thrust of my book is about how can we combine AI with other kinds of intelligence. Um, I mean, I'm quite involved in AI, and Nesta is as an investor, we convene, we do research projects on AI. And in some ways, I'm quite a believer that there are all sorts of very useful tools coming out of mm. AI for everything from traffic management to care for the elderly. And, and so I'm, I'm less skeptical than many others. But in nearly all the things which really matter, what I think is missing is what I call intelligence design, which is good skills in how to combine the machine intelligence, the data, the AI, with how human beings make decisions, particularly in groups. And that's as true of something like cancer care, where there's amazing advances in, in AI and data analysis, but if they don't fit how doctors and nurses actually work, if they don't fit how patients think of themselves and their own health, they'll be largely wasted. They won't have their, their full impact. My, my sort of dream in this intelligence design field is how to take could be a field like primary schools how do you get them to use data and AI to help perhaps teach kids math but at the same time pull together the insights of thousands of teachers the insights of thousands of parents and pupils who are, who are gathering experiential knowledge about what works and what doesn't and that we now have tools which can organize that collective intelligence mm in a far more concerted and exciting way than ever in the past. Mm. That's the big gain. The sad thing is there's not a single university anywhere on the planet teaching intelligence design. They have fantastic computer science courses. They may have a good psychology discipline, organizational design. But mm. almost every field we come across, the missing bit is this intelligence design, how to combine the technology, the formal um, data-driven uh, stuff 
with how human beings really work and really think. And so in my book, I try to provide a really theoretical framework for how to think about it. I give examples of what works in practice, how you might apply these to universities or democracy or, or businesses. And our hope in the course of this year and next is we're going to create a centre for intelligence design, bring mm. together people from around the world working on this, mm. probably create an academic journal, um, a number of you know, events and conferences, but almost to create a new discipline. Very parallel, I think, to what happened a century or more ago when urban planning and urban studies appeared as a cross-disciplinary new discipline mm. on the boundaries of a number of existing ones. In those, that time it was architecture and you know, construction engineering and so on. And I think we, we're missing something probably even more important than that now. Mm. And the universities should be at the forefront of this. Mm -hmm. And I think they will get there. But, but so far, as I say, there isn't a single one anywhere on earth. So how will you go about that? You'll find um, some philanthropists uh, and, and then an institution and put that together and create a centre at a particular university? We're going to create the centre initially here in, in Nesta, but with a number of associate universities. Um, and we'll primarily run and fund practical experiments which demonstrate better ways of combining mm -hmm. AI with human and collective intelligence, because I think nothing speaks more powerfully than real-life examples which help people get this. Mm. We will be working on developing curriculum and training content. We will be, I hope, also building up the theoretical side. I say about half my book is rather pure theory, which is not everyone's cup of tea, but I, I think it's a field which needed better theory uh, to underpin um, the practice. And for us, success would be that um, lots of the top universities within two or three years are doing this much better than us, and so we can close down. Right.